listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, and welcome to BMO's In Tune podcast. In this episode, we dive into the consumer retail space and the current challenges and ultimate potential opportunities for retail companies as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. With us today is Simeon Siegel, BMO's consumer retail and brands analyst, whose recent thought-leading report, Did COVID Actually Save Retail? Deep Dive into a Post-Pandemic Path to Profits has generated intense conversations among and within large and small investment shops, and company management teams. So let's jump right in. Simeon, first, thank you for joining us. Second, out of the gate here, could you frame the conversation for us by outlining some of the high-level takeaways from your report, particularly around stores and sales versus margins? Great. Thank you very much, Todd. Great to be here on the series. I'm really excited to discuss our note. We've been having a lot of really interesting conversations, as you said, both investors and corporates alike. So the the genesis of this report and uh, the headline, uh, although obviously eye-catching, I do mean it, I think that the reality is retail, every single media headline for the last five plus years have been talking about the downward spiral and the death of the store. The question is why? And I think one hypothesis is simply in this world, we are taught to focus on growth for growth's sake and humans and companies alike rarely stop and take a breath. COVID forced that. COVID forced, the pandemic forced everyone in all capacities to stop and take a breath. The question is what happens when you let that air out? And so what we started looking at at the beginning of the pandemic, we essentially looked for the companies that perhaps were on a path that was beyond their control, forcing them to grow for growth's sake rather than focus on profits. We looked for the largest companies that were actually making the least amount of money. And what was so interesting was every time we would see a brand like Victoria's Secret and Under Armour, two of which we subsequently upgraded, Every time we would see these brands mentioned in the news, they would be referred to as broken or dead brands. It's hard to imagine a brand that is selling five plus billion dollars worth of clothing as being broken or dead, but that's what the descriptor was. If you dug a little deeper, the margin was broken or dead. They weren't making money. And so that led the question, ultimately, if sales are the best indicator of a consumer buy-in, but gross margin is the best indicator of consumers' perception of brand worth, what do you do with a company that's the largest, one of the largest brands in the history of time and yet cannot make money? That's was, that was the genesis of this report. And so what we looked into was, does it make sense? When, when does it make sense for a company to shrink their top line to allow them to grow the bottom line, and then taking that step further, what does it mean? How does a company shrink to grow? The most obvious answer is closing stores, right? That's the the conversation. If retail is overstored, then the easiest answer would be obviously shutter those boxes. But the reality is, and the most interesting conclusion from this report, which I'm sure we'll get into, 
was this idea that although closing stores might be the most obvious first decision, a concentrated effort to reduce promotions and essentially fire brand dilutive customers could actually be much more impactful. And that's what we ultimately found that although a handful of the companies under our coverage would benefit from closing stores, only a handful of companies under our coverage wouldn't benefit from reducing promotions. So two ways to lose sales, two ways to constructively shrink your revenue base, close the stores and reduce costs, or walk away dilutive discounts and elevate everything that's left. There's a right level for each company. Generally speaking, we favor the latter. Great overview. Okay. So in going a little deeper, why now? Or what about the current situation provides companies with a unique opportunity to shrink to grow? Yeah, Todd, it's a great question. So why now? The interesting thing was companies have tried to do this throughout time, not on a regular basis, but the notion of shrinking to grow has been in vogue beforehand. The reality is it didn't really work. And when what I mean by that is it might be easy to shrink, but if there's no growth on the other side, what was the point? So when looking back over the last five years, around five years ago, Ralph Lauren, Michael Kors, and Coach were three great examples of companies, brands that proactively realized they had extended too far, realized that their sales had gotten to a point where they were dilutive, and sought, they sought to bring that back down. They sought to re-elevate the pricing power and brand perception. Ultimately, they were successful in stabilizing the margin, but they did not grow their profits. The, the, the EBIT, the operating income, is lower than where it was before they began cutting. So what's different now, what, what we thought was interesting as we looked into this topic was that the reality is, one, no one likes to get in front of investors or stakeholders or employees and announce that for the next year, you're going to be seeing a revenue cut. You're going to be seeing a quarter. You're going to walk a quarter of your business out the door. That's very difficult. Well, no one has to do that right now. COVID did it for them. So the first piece that's different than five years ago is the shrink has already been done and the shrink was involuntary. It wasn't a decision. That makes it easier. So the question is, what do you do after you have already shrunk? So the second thing that we looked for was this notion that we had reflected on earlier was large brands with no profits. Because at the end of the day, if you're adequately earning or over earning, then what that means is shrinking to stabilize a margin simply means you create a smaller business. Healthier, but smaller. If you actually see the opportunity to raise your profits, if by raising the price, you can elevate how much you actually earn, well, that's where the growth comes from. And that was where we had found our treasure map where we, that we reflected in, this, in the report. For anyone that has the report, it's exhibit nine on page nine, oddly enough. That became our treasure roadmap for COVID. And essentially what we looked for was we looked for the large brands with little profits. The most glaring brands were Victoria's Secret within the LB, within the L Brands family, and Under Armour. Among the others that, that caught our eye were the Gap brand. What that meant for us, and we had upgraded L Brands because of the Victoria's Secret opportunity, and we upgraded Under Armour for the same, was this idea that the, co the pandemic had already forced these businesses to shrink if they then sought to not 
return if they were able to take themselves off of the rat race or the hamster wheel or whatever that analogy is supposed to be they would be able to see an improvement in profits and what we've seen since then is the beginnings of that progress okay got it what are some of the dynamics around how you're framing shrink to grow strategies yeah so shrinking to grow todd what i mean by that is shrinking revenues to grow profits i think people hear shrinking to grow and all of a sudden automatically assume that means cutting costs and unfortunately people that's really not what i'm advocating what i'm suggesting is this idea that you can shrink your revenue shrink your top line to allow you to grow your bottom line to allow you to grow your profits It's this idea of companies get to a point where their incremental sale is a detrimental sale. And it's a hard concept to initially think through. And it's a really hard concept to do while you're in the middle of it and in the midst of growth. But at the end of the day, it's plausible. Ubiquity is not cool. Uniformity is not cool. Companies want to be special. People want to feel what they have is special. And therefore, having less can sometimes equate to generating and earning more. Thanks for that additional uh, additional color. So to think simplistically, should investors and management teams hear what you're saying as stores bad, we must close all stores? So stores are bad. Listen, that's that's the mantra. I get it. It's a, it's a, it's a very fair point that you bring up. Um, I don't subscribe to that. And and listen, obviously, finding the right number of stores is key. And as I mentioned earlier, at the end of the day, there are a handful of our companies that I think would benefit pretty meaningfully by closing underperforming stores. But by and large, what this analysis showed us, and it was really interesting, and it was this exhibit, it was our first exhibit, it, it earned the top mark. Um When we looked at the amount of earnings, this is exhibit one on page four of the report. When we looked and it essentially, it looks at how much companies would earn per closed store. Only a handful of companies that we cover really would see much of a lift. And at the end of the day, that's a good thing because that means that stores are actually valuable. It means there's a reason to keep them around. Figuring out how to optimize store fleets. And that means both store counts but it also means store sizes, figuring out how to most efficiently utilize stores. And that means the shopping experience, but it also increasingly means fulfillment opportunities and mini warehouses. All of these are going to be evolving questions that are obviously worth continuing to talk about. But simply closing stores feels like an an easy decision. And And I say easy decision, obviously, with much hesitation. It's not easy to to anyone a to decide and B to implement, but it's the it's the first thing people bring up. And that's I think why stores get this rep. But at the end of the day, generally speaking, store closures will reduce expenses. They won't really help improve what you are still selling. Understood. Okay. It's about optimizing stores, counts, size, and other factors, not specifically just closing them all. But at this point, I got to ask, is there a precedent? Does a shrink to growth strategy actually work in retail? It's a fantastic question because the reality is, on the one hand, we have a perfect case study in the shrink to growers of the past that we alluded to. On the other hand, this is a new frontier. And I've thrown out the idea of operating and hoping for a new norm. I'm more just trying to work through the current norm, which is an ever-evolving state. 
So what we did see, unfortunately, was historically the store, the companies over the last 10 plus years that announced heavy store closures, their sales and their profits are all less than they were beforehand. So they did just shrink. So a strategy of simply closing stores has yet to show us a shrink to grow benefit. It just shows us a shrinking business. And does that mean the stores have gotten to, the companies have gotten too large and therefore they needed to shrink? Or does it mean cause and effect by shrinking, that's all you do? Probably a little bit of both. So the question is, what do you do to fix? How, what, what is the right path? That's what led us into the second half of the story of really looking to elevate the brand and using this as an oper- unique opportunity to push forward. So as companies push forward and you talk about it in the report, when they measure success, is 2019 or do you think 2019 should be the right comp or comparison year for them to use? So what do I mean, Todd, when I say the 2019 is the wrong base year? I think that any company that's looking to recapture back to 2019 is doing themselves a disservice. Don't try to get back to 19. Instead, try to grow from 2020. And all of a sudden, there is growth in your horizon. At the end of the day, this is the first time in recent retail history where companies get to decide, either get or have to decide, whichever you want to frame it, whichever you want to look at it, but they get to decide how many stores to open, not how many stores to close. Subtle, but important. That's what's going on here. So let's take this opportunity instead of let, let's magically flip to Jan 21 and pretend like everything is going to be normal after that. Anyone who immediately looks to return to what they lost ultimately is just putting themselves back on that downward facing hamster wheel. Mix, I'll, I'll totally mix match all the uh, the analogies here. So if on the other hand, they opt to find the right level of, of price hikes, acknowledging elasticity of demand will necessitate a drop in units, well, all of a sudden you have a better story. And just for numbers, I was looking at this recently, we created a, a model which allows you to, to input what price you think the company should raise and it'll spit out among many other things how many units it can tolerate losing and still be break even and what was so interesting about it these these numbers are pretty big numbers and just looking at under armor for a second because that's a company we had talked about beforehand by our math if you were to say if under armor were to raise their price points by 25% they could be break even they could still they could actually end up ahead as long as their units decline less than 40%. So some context there, a $50 pair of sweatpants, which sounds pretty expensive for Under Armour, but a $50 pair of sweatpants, if you charge $62, $62.5, and you don't lose 40% of your business, you're making more money. You lose a third of your business, you start making a lot of money. These numbers add up, they compound, and it's, it's worth keeping in mind. Do you mind going back to the why now question and elaborating a bit on that? We we talked about this a little bit before, but the reality is the why now is because you were forced to shrink. The why now is no one has to get up in front of an investor and say, get ready for a very painful year ahead because everyone has internalized a very painful year. And, And frankly, we're already hopefully nicely through it. So the why now is simply... Take advantage of, I I hate to use that, don't let a good crisis go to waste, so I'm not going to, I'll just paraphrase it. But at the end of the day, 
this is happening. This is here. Don't put your head in the sand. Look at what it can do for you going forward. That's what makes this interesting. Perfect. Big opportunity for management teams who can think longer term and use the current COVID-driven disruption to their advantage when setting their forward strategy. Love it. No wonder the report has garnered so much attention from management teams as well as investors. I get it. Next question. Taking a step back, does a rising tide lift all boats? A rising tide should help everyone here. And, and, and the reality is what this means is you're leaving it up to the company to decide and you're allowing them to essentially focus and refashion their business for the future. So whereas the most obvious players here are the largest brands, are the brands that are multi-billion dollars that have established their proof of concept, have extended too far and now could benefit from being smaller. Uh, yeah, I guess you could make the argument that this can apply to startups as well, more as a lesson in going forward and more as a, a conversation around thinking through what is the right level of growth. Now, I, I think the reality is the difference here is the startups presumably are very far from diluting their brand, but it is worth, it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a good message to keep in their back of their mind as they push this forward. You, you mentioned some specific brands in the report and at the beginning of our conversation, and just ask like, what made these names or or the brands stand out to you? Uh, yeah, so so I've mentioned Victoria's Secret and Under Armour a few times, mainly because they're so big, mainly because they just don't make much money, and mainly because the media portrays them as being broken and dead brands. I, I that was those are the common denominators that attracted me most as as the perfect examples of this story. It doesn't end there. I mean, the reality is if we look at which stores will, which companies will benefit from closing stores, the gap shows up a lot. National vision shows up. If we look at who can benefit from reducing promotions, that list just goes on. I mean, that, that is a large list. And that is, even though the, the companies mentioned and, and the top ones we saw over here, Victoria's Secret, Gap again, but then Nordstrom shows up and actually off pricers show up a little bit. I don't expect them to raise price, but but it was just interesting. And then Urban Outfitters. So the list here goes on, but that's a story that once you run your own numbers as a company, figure out where that equilibrium. And again, this is this is business school 101 in, in theory. It's price elasticity of demand. It's just a very hard thing to do in practice, or or it's an easy thing to sidestep in practice. Okay, fancy guy, you mentioned price elasticity of demand and B-School 101, which make the concept sound pretty straightforward. But realistically, do you think companies will actually go along? So, yeah, listen, that that's you ask a lot of really good questions, Todd. That's probably the most interesting one. Do I think that the companies will actually go along? I would hope that they would go along. At the end of the day, the analysis my team and I did is hypothetical. But what does give us confidence and what gives us encouragement is we are seeing some pretty meaningful initial moves. We're seeing some companies capitalize on exactly this. Obviously, store closure announcements are, are showing up left and right. Restructurings in some capacity are showing up. But more interestingly than that, inventories have been down pretty heavily. And Victoria's Secret, again, as the example here, is talking about taking their inventories down 50%, what they saw last, what they saw initially intra-COVID 
was by bringing inventories down, they actually saw margins start to improve for the first time in a very long time. So combinations of walking away from big stores, but also making a very concerted effort to use when, when life gives you reduced inventories, make gross margin, we're seeing that. And that's encouraging. And I expect to see it go forward. At the end of the day, I think the underlying current of your question, though, we're still dealing with people. And, and the hardest thing to do, and the reason that I think this failed at the, at the first time around, or, or at least was not a glowing success the first time around, was this idea that you're still predicated and you're still baking on the fact that people leading these companies are going to be okay watching their market share bleed out, knowing that it'll translate to higher profits, but still seeing constant news that shares being taken. What needs to happen is the, 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 what we need to bank on is that these people will have the fortitude to allow that market share to be lost. Because the best thing that can happen is inventory is reduced, prices go up, and margins go up meaningfully. The worst thing that can happen is inventory is reduced, companies give in and start promoting, so units are down and prices down. That, that would be a disaster. I think that what we're seeing so far seems to suggest that the companies that are taking the initial steps are going to have the ability to push through. And again, the benefit of this time around is they were forced to weather probably 75% of the year's cut before even given a chance. That's what makes this special, but that's, uh, that's definitely going to be worth following along and monitoring. This all sounds solid for company operations. I get it. Do you think investors will reward the companies or, or the stocks? Uh, yeah, listen, I, I think this all makes sense from a textbook perspective. I obviously believe in it from, from a practical perspective as well. Do I think investors are going to reward these companies? Well, the benefit is we've already seen this tick up. So we upgraded L Brands at the beginning of the pandemic. The stock uh, was in, in the low teens to, to roughly $10 range. It's now around $30. There's been a meaningful appetite shift in mall-based retail and understanding that undervalue does not mean zero value. And fortunately, we've seen that uptick. The question of the duration and the question of what will investors demand for markers of success remains to be seen because I think, and you bring up a great point, I think that at the end of the day, the mile markers of success in a shrink-to-grow business are negative news points. They're negative data points. They're announcements of closures. They're announcements of market share donation. It's not until the end that it starts really becoming positive. And that's a hard thing to sit through, again, from the management perspective, but from an investor perspective as well. There needs to be a mentality shift. There needs to be a willingness to look past. I think that willingness is best achieved when there's something to hide behind. And, and, and hides the wrong word, when there's something to bet on other than this story. For L Brands, we saw a tremendous opportunity for Victoria's Secret, but the reality is the investor is allowed to bet on the phenomenal growth of Bath & Body Works. For Under Armour, you didn't have that thesis to hide behind. There wasn't another brand. So Victoria's Secret had Bath & Body. Gap has Old Navy. American Eagle has Aerie. They just... All these portfolio of brands, sometimes investors focus on the weakest links. Other times they focus on the potential for opportunity. 
Under Armour is Under Armour in all of its glory. And that has made, for better and worse, made the conversation focus entirely on are people willing to bet on a shrink to grow story? Are people willing to bet on a retail turnaround, a brand turnaround right now? And that's what's made the conversations around that stock differently. And relative across our coverage universe, I don't remember the exact number. I think almost half of my stocks are up over 100% from their lows at COVID. Under Armour has been a laggard. And I think it's precisely because of that. So the question of they will be the perfect example of will investors allow a shrink to grow story to work? Ultimately, the, the, the proof is going to be in the numbers. If the company can stick to this idea that they are now vocalizing about really focusing on premiumizing their brand, don't know if that's a verb, but we'll go with it, then the reality is the EBIT and the, 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 the earnings will grow, and so will the stock. If they see Nike taking all of their share and fall back into the normal course, not normal for Under Armour, not normal for Under Armour, normal for all of retail, they fall back into the course of fighting market, fighting for market share and protecting market share at all margin costs, then obviously that's that's a major step backward. I'm optimistic that they're going to be able to stick to this plan. And it would seem that COVID has created this opportunity for them. All right. Final question here, sir. How do you think retail looks in the future? Oh, so you're asking me to get philosophical here. How do I envision the future? Um, I'm probably not, uh, that's probably way above my pay grade, but since you asked, I, I will venture to guess. Uh, I think it's some iteration of what we have today. I think that the the interesting thing, if done correctly, is retail does work today. The the It's not without irony that the companies that generate the stores that generate the most positive traffic growth are actually the companies with the largest store fleets, not with the smallest. And in our world, in the and, and even within apparel, off-pricers hailed as among the best business models in retail don't have e-com. And I think they win because they don't have e-com, not in spite of it. So at the end of the day, I think a blend of obviously off-pricers continuing to take share, obviously e-commerce continuing to grow, and, and hopefully some semblance of pricing power in the hands of the brands because they are focused on brand elevation and profitable growth rather than growth growth. I think that ultimately can help retail. I think that's why we say COVID may have actually helped save retail. And unfortunately, that does mean there will be plenty of stores that are closed and plenty of brands that don't make it. But for those that do this idea of surviving and thriving, a very overdone concept, feels to be under their control. And what is unique about COVID and unique about the pandemic is it feels like it's the first time in a long time where we can say that. It feels like it's the first time in a long time where the confluence of negative factors fighting against retail's succession or their ability to succeed in the future have finally given way to an opportunity for forward-looking leadership teams to make changes that can help grow these businesses profitably for the future, refashion their businesses for the long-term, and set them up for incredible success. Analyst, stock picker, and philosopher, Simeon Siegel. Simeon, Seriously, thank you for being here. Definitely appreciate you joining me to provide some takeaways from as well as coloring context around your report. Love the thought leadership and the way you frame the debate. 
Before we sign off, I'd also like to thank Rachel Armstrong, our resident podcast technician, and of course, a thank you to the listeners who tuned in for this Intune podcast. Be well, and until next time, let's all do our part to keep it safe out there. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.